Welcome to the Mwango Capital Podcast. At Mwango Capital, we aggregate uh, key information on African capital markets through Twitter, Telegram, and our weekly newsletter called The Baobab. We also hold weekly discussions every Friday on topical issues on African capital markets, and we also engage in analysis and research and training. We look forward to another engaging conversation on our Twitter spaces. Uh, So join us there every Friday so that we can keep having quality conversations on African capital markets. Without further ado, welcome to today's conversation. Welcome to another episode of Mwango Species. Today we have Ariel Bangera who is the CEO of the Flame Tree Group, one of the listed companies in the NSE. So it's a very interesting company and we'd like to hear from the CEO and one of the founders himself in terms of the journey. So Hiril, I'd like to welcome you to the podium and probably uh, you can take it from here, you know, greet the audience and let us know who Hiril is. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your on your platform this evening. I started my business when I was still studying. If you're asking the Flame Tree journey or my journey on Flame Tree, I traveled, I saw the, at that time I, we, we used to stay in Nairobi and I, we had lots of water shortages and we had a steel tank on our roof. I happened to travel to India to do my, is it O level, A levels then? And I saw new products being made, made out of plastic. And I thought there's an opportunity. That time it was new all over the world. I thought there was an opportunity to manufacture that in Kenya. So I tried it just, it was just an experiment. We were trying to see how to manufacture this product. And, but we slowly got that going. It took us a few years. And once we did did start, it was not the easiest start to, to sell this product in the Kenyan market because then there were steel tanks at that moment. And being a young person, convincing a lot of architects and builders who, was much, who were much older than me to move from steel to plastic was really an uphill task. But eventually, over a period of time, we could see the tides turning. People eventually moved to plastic tanks. We saw more opportunities in other countries. We expanded into a number of other countries uh, where we saw opportunity for the same product. And during my journey, so looking for places to manufacture tanks or what we were doing at that stage, I saw lots of opportunity in FMCG where I felt I saw the purchasing power going up. We saw that if you could make a product for the right price point for the people to buy, I felt there was an opportunity. So we ventured into cosmetics that time, launching mainly in Kenya and Rwanda. That required a lot of capital. We learned a lot along the way. And I felt we needed other products as well to join that the portfolio of uh, cosmetics because we were going to the same field. So we ventured into uh, manufacturing of snacks. and But the whole whole journey by that stage needed capital and we always strapped for capital. Then we consolidated all our businesses and listed on the NSC. And post that, we did a few acquisitions to keep growing the business, and and here we are today. Good, fantastic. I think we'll we'll get into more details of at least the major business units as we go, as we go along. But I think what strikes me is um, is is Roto as a business, and you know that's the first business that you you started, and 
you kind of changed the industry. You know, everyone was at that point in time was buying the steel tanks and a lot of Jokali fabricators working on the steel tanks. You know, what I've got, I deal with a plumber who's been working for, I think, 30, 40 years. And his, his standard, he says, you know, it's it's roto. And, you know, what doshi is to steel, I think in Kenya, roto is to, to molded plastic tanks. And, and, you know, changing that industry, now that, that's become the norm. So now you've got this one brand that kind of stands out from the entire uh, group. I mean, people, Roto is actually way more famous or known and more pervasive in society than Flame Tree. I mean, obviously you had to consolidate for business purposes and, and whatnot. But, you know, so how how do you go about having this one brand that, that sticks out and you have all these other, other brands in your portfolio? For me, I think Roto is more known because it's also the oldest business. So FMCG is really much newer in the in our portfolio of businesses that we are in. So, but over the years, if you look at uh, where we will be down the horizon, I think some of our other brands will stand out quite well. Already at the moment, Nature Zone is quite a well-known brand in spices. We see spices moving quite well. I mean, Zoe as well, the cosmetics moving, becoming more and more popular by the day. So if you look at the horizon, not as today, but we look at it in the future, I feel we will have a much larger portfolio of brands which are quite known in the market. So manufacturing is not easy in this part of the world. What you know, what drives Flame Tree as a group to kind of you know go through that entire value addition chain and as much as possible and kind of get to market, knowing that you know the the, the country isn't quite set up for manufacturing, but that opportunity is there. I mean, what, what's the thinking behind? It? I I don't particularly quite agree with the statement that manufacturing is uh, is uh, difficult in Kenya because I don't think there's any industry that's easy. And if you really want to succeed in a business, whichever industry, there's going to be some sort of difficulties along the way. And manufacturing in general has its difficulties, even in Kenya. But the way I look at it is there's a lot of potential for products to be made in Kenya. There's a market. And uh, I think there's an opportunity. I'm more of a campaigner saying that it can be manufactured in Kenya than saying manufacturing is difficult in Kenya. If you look at it on the positive side, the machine that is put in, say, in China can be installed in Kenya. The machine that's put in, say, Europe can be installed in Kenya. Our labor force is quite good here. So what is the difficulties? Maybe post-manufacturing some of the distributions, uh, but in general to manufacturing in Kenya, we don't have that notion that it's extremely hard. Well, I, I think, and I think you validated this. And you know, a lot of other manufacturers as well, even through thick and thin, there is that possibility. And yes, you're right. No business is easy. But now, what's what's the thought process now for for yourself as a CEO? And you have multiple brands, and you're bringing more more brands online in terms of skill sets, in terms of consolidation, in terms of looking and planning five years ahead, and 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 the fact that now. You're, you're in multiple industries. If you just run us through the thought process, you know, how do you come up with a vision and how do you consolidate and execute on this vision? 
you know, if we if we try to look at ourselves as a company down the road, I think we'd like to be today. It's easy to say those guys are plastic manufacturers or or roto, but down the road, I would like to see us as more known as an FMCG company. So even if you look at the products that we make and the new launches that we do and the acquisitions that we do, have mainly been in the line of adding more products to our portfolio. One of our our basic strategy basically is to to get the product right, to get the marketing right, distribution right. And if we can scale that up across various African countries, manufacturing, say, in Kenya or another hub, and then distributing to other countries within the continent. And I f- we believe there's an opportunity for that because a lot of the multinationals that we have in Kenya or the FMCG com- companies rather, mainly multinationals that come from outside the continent and some of the large FMC manufacturers are still rather regional. So if we could scale up, get it right, we feel within Africa there's an immense opportunity to move what we do and manufacture what we do, what we manufacture to distribute it across the continent. And the thing, the difference is because we are so close to our market, we have the ability to react to what the consumer wants, to make a product that's more attuned to what the price point where that's required in the local market. And that's basically the strategy to make a product that's affordable, good quality, and it's that to the taste or the liking of the local or the population that we serve. Yeah, but you, you've brought up one of my favorite topics, which is a FMCG, and then you're looking at the PNG and Unilever model where yeah. there's a lot of consolidation, international brands, and then now uh, what we're seeing is with access to technology and cheaper machines and more knowledge that has kind of dispersed, it's, 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 it's much easier to set up local manufacturing or hyper-local manufacturing you know, in the 2020s than it was 40 or 50 years ago. And now you know, you're seeing semblance of manufacturing hubs in Tanzania. You're seeing a little bit in Zambia. The Comesa also comes in uh, into effect now, where we are able now to cross to cross borders with with standardized taxation and, and tariffs, and lesser barriers to to entry. I mean, it's it's each country operates independently, but you know the 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 light in terms of economic integration is Africa is fast moving into somewhat, at least at the regional level, to economic integration. The, the point that you brought in is that localization and localizing the brands. How important is it for, for a manufacturer like you to get the branding right, but also to get that product market fit and to be as close to market as possible? I think it's quite important because... Uh, if I first take you back a bit, you mentioned two names, Procter and Gamble and Unilever. One of the first things you've got to look at these companies, these are not companies which are 10 years old or five years old. Some of them are over 100 years old. So first of all, you've got to build a foundation within the company that this company can live beyond a certain age so that it can create such brands. To build a brand, it's unless probably it's in the new tech industries, most brands are much older than 10, 15 years. So you've got to create brands which live fairly long. And secondly, for, for moving products across the continent, I do feel that it is our strategy, but we are a fairly young continent yet, and we have lots of hurdles of moving goods across uh, borders. But eventually, I do believe we will get there. And I, I do believe 
as long as once we have to get the product right, we have to get it localized. And if you look at our problem, pro, the ourselves recently, most recently, we've started exporting to Mozambique. And all the products on the shelves in Mozambique mostly come from South Africa or for Europe. The labels on the products are all in English. The local population speaks in Portuguese. So what we did is we labeled all our products in Portuguese. So if you see our lotions, the instructions, the names, everything is in Portuguese. So we believe that kind of localization is quite important for a product to succeed. Yeah, you know, for sure. And that, you know, the, the, the one size fits all doesn't quite work, especially now you have more informed consumers, people want more choices, and you know that tailoring has to be there. But you know, mentioning Mozambique, obviously they're closer to SADC than they are to uh, either the EAC or, uh, or at least to East Africa. And, and you guys are still able to find product market fit there, at least get to the market. And obviously Mozambique is not known to be an industrial country. I mean, they, they produce a lot of oil and gas, hydrocarbons, and import most of their products. You know, so what's the thought process of going into one? It's somewhat of a virgin market, but it's it's very different from your East African markets where the language is different, the habits are different, totally different uh, culture. How do you guys kind of go through that planning and execution and entering a market like that? Uh, firstly, uh, it falls within our goals. If you look at our goals, is to make a world to create world class African brands. And uh, Mozambique is part of the continent. It doesn't mean that the people there are any different from the people in Kenya. They have a different language they speak. Their cultures are different. And that's something that we've, when we go there, we localize very quickly. We try to become a local company. We don't go there saying that we are a foreign company, a company from Kenya. We'd like to be identified mostly as a local company. There are challenges in Mozambique, obviously, because of its proximity to South Africa. And when you say there are less industries, it's it's for the very reason. But eventually, as the market sizes increase, you'll see more and more manufacturing in countries like this because transport costs are still very high in Mozambique to move product all the way from South Africa to the north of the country can take a week. So there's still logistical issues. So manufacturing is still possible. Although we have a basis in main factory is in the south in Maputo, and we have another factory in the north. But in the cosmetic distribution, we're still faced with the competition from South Africa. But building a brand, there's competition everywhere. So I think the main point here is to build a brand that people like. Now, beauty and cosmetics, you know, for a a lot of people, it seems to be a a very lucrative industry. Obviously, you know, the unit economics are slightly better than your classic FMCG, but also very difficult. And then, you know, the African consumer is, has been underserved for, for quite some time. So what, what was, what's the appeal for, for this segment for Flintree? Yeah, for us, we believe that um, we are still a young continent when it comes to uptake of uh, cosmetics. But it's not just cosmetics. It's most of our products that we make in FMCG. If you look at the per capita consumption of most products within the continent, be it steel, be it plastics, be it drinking water, it's still fairly low. And if you look at the continent, most of the countries that we operate, the per capitals are growing. The countries are becoming more urban. So the uptake of our products like cosmetics or even snacks is constant 
constantly growing. So I, it's like we are in a continent which has immense growth. So I feel uh, we are in one of the industries which are growing nonetheless. So a, a huge chunk of the problems that you have to solve, especially with the products and segments that where, you, where you're operating, is distribution. And, you know, distribution in like even in Kenya is not it's not an easy problem to solve. And now you're you're going multi-country. So what are your thoughts on distribution and how do you handle your distribution in the different markets and uh, segments? Distribution is hard. Even in Kenya, it's hard. What the model we use in Kenya is with the kind of model we are trying to replicate in the other locations is usually... In key towns, try to distribute yourself mainly to key accounts, to main large customers, but mainly to avoid fraud and loss of, uh, to improve cash flow, we use wholesalers or distributors in, in regions, give them segregate regions for the distributors. And then we have our people who take them from the distributors to the last mile. And then we have people who move it to the kiosks and to the smaller markets in in those uh, regions. And that's something that we're using similarly in uh, both Rwanda and... Because you mentioned something very uh, interesting, which is very critical to doing business in this uh, part of the world. And I don't think it's it's, it's unique to, to Kenya. And obviously the likes of Coca-Cola perfected it is you have to get to the to the last mile. And majority of the consumers probably are much nearer to a kiosk than a hypermarket or supermarket or, or, or shopping mall. So informal retail is, is, is a critical channel for any business that needs to scale. So in terms of your pricing, in terms of your packaging, in terms of your product innovation, how are you kind of tuning in Flametree for this, the mass segment? And that's, that's where most of the consumers are. I think bringing up the name Coca-Cola is, is a good example because it's the same drink you drink, drink in a kiosk and it's the same drink you drink in a five-star hotel. The same quality, same thing. And what has happened is because the last mile has been fairly large, although the formal market is also growing in Kenya, but since the large, last mile has been large, uh, a lot of local manufacturers have felt that consumers on the last mile are not conscious of quality, are not conscious of where the product is made, are not brand conscious and can sway. And what we are trying to do is make sure that even at the last mile, the brand is aware, is known, the quality is good, it's consistent every time, and it's what people want. So it doesn't mean that someone is on the last mile, he has no choice. It doesn't mean that someone in the last mile has no personal feelings for what he desires and aspires for. And I think this has been some of our problems within manufacturing or FMCG within the continent, not just in Kenya. And these are some some of the opportunities that we see within Flametree, that we want to make products which are affordable for everyone. It should be at a price point that's affordable, but also easily accessible to the person. The same product that's there in in a main market, supermarket should be the same product in in a kiosk somewhere in the rural area. Good, good. So how, in terms of marketing, all right, so that product awareness has to be there. Your, your, your products, especially on the FMCG side, you're competing with other local manufacturers, but a lot of um, international brands that have... Uh, that sophistication uh, of really pushing not only the branding, but marketing 
marketing out. I was, I was looking at a video yesterday from from South Africa. It was, it was more of a TikTok meme, but you know they'd visited some of the townships and they're asking people what is Aquafresh, and people are saying, "Well, it's Colgate." You know, so yeah, and that that kind of goes into the the power of branding and you know, where these early mover early movers and you know, the sophisticated branding, and now you're coming in as as the small guy, but with with that intent of upseating existing brands or at least taking a local brand further and further into the uh, into the continent how from a marketing function are you able to to operate across the different brands within the group i think one thing we have to understand this is a long-term game it's not a short-term game where we're going to do one single advertisement or something on social media or do a local campaign and suddenly things start moving up because brand building takes years and that's one of the things that I mentioned that you need some of the large multinationals are not young companies. They are much older companies. So keeping the long time view in sight, I would say that uh, this competition in every industry, if uh, you're going to fear uh, competition, then basically we, there's nothing that we can manufacture in, in Africa because there's always going to be some some product that's going to be imported. The fact that our proximity to the market gives us an advantage. Our ability to be more versatile and develop new products quicker to what our people need locally gives us an advantage. Just look, let's, let's look at the situation of things like sanitizers during COVID. Sanitizers were made all over the world, but the companies that were close to the markets could reach the markets on time. We couldn't even export some of these products during that time because in, in those local countries around us, everyone manufactured. So multinationals have an advantage, but as a, a local manufacturer, you also have advantages which you need to take advantage of to give you, to edge you inch by inch, slowly by slowly forward. To, and if you look at it on the long term, I do believe there will be advantages for companies like us. All right. You know, that's very good uh, insights. And, you know, obviously local will always have advantages uh, in one way or another. And it's, it's, up, it's up to the firms to be able to see how to build that into their competitive uh, advantage. So you, you're currently... Uh, recognized as the longest serving uh, CEO at the NSC and and obviously your your route to the to the NSC is, is, is very different from your your other CEOs especially with with emerging uh, emerging enterprises segments but I think what, what I find very interesting is you have a very long history in entrepreneurship and and risk taking and you, you started from very humble background and now you have multiple brands and you know you're not the typical NSC CEO who's kind of has a corporate background and everything else you've kind of worked um, from you know you started this business from when you're studying and you're still at the helm of the business how important is it for for leadership to be one sustainable but long-serving leadership to kind of input that division and secondly is as a group what's the importance of of leadership not only at your level but at the brand level and the, and the different companies what importance does flame free put on on leadership um leadership is always important uh, in every case but uh, let me just correct a state uh, statement which makes it funny that uh, you say i'm the longest serving ceo yeah i read that but i don't know how that is totally right because from the time of listing if you look to now i think i'm not the longest serving and any founder of a company usually ends up being the longest serving if he's staying at the position of the ceo so i don't know how accurate that whole statement is but if you ask me 
what have I learned and what are the advantages of being a longer serving uh, person who's been in the business for long. I feel along the journey, you make lots of mistakes. You make errors, you learn, and errors are good teachers. Success can be a bad teacher. Those ups and downs make you make better decisions over the long run. And for us at Leadership in Flame Tree, we look at ways to keep in-house leaders. We do training consistently. We empower them ways that they run the businesses individually. Although we represent a consolidated company when we talk about Flame Tree Group, but each business works fairly independently, uh, making decisions on the ground so they can be much faster and more nimble. And I feel in each company, we try to choose and have people who have experience or have the fire within to grow the business. And so leadership for any any business is very important, in my opinion. Well, before we continue well, with the questions, so this is just a call out to the audience. Uh, if you have any questions, please respond to the, the pinned tweet on at Mwango Capital. Or alternatively, you can uh, DM the handle Mwango Capital and we will field your, your questions in, in good time. Now... I will move over to the next next series of questions, which is on the business model of 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 Flame Tree. And you know, we've kind of briefly touched on the different companies, but you can kind of go through the different industries. I mean, you're in cosmetics, you're in molded plastics, both in tanks and and other molded plastic products. You have multiple tank brands, and you're also in. Uh, food and trading so you know pretty much as you said you know you're aggressively going after fmcg and uh, still in the in the plastics business so as you consolidated all these different assets into one group and listed one what was you thinking and two is you know you have this dual operating structure within mauritius and kenya what's the thinking also behind that and what's the rationale and i'm sure there are very good reasons for that like you said, Flame Tree is uh, over 13 different companies that form Flame Tree Group, and we're consolidated on a holding company which is registered in Mauritius. It's why did we have it in Mauritius? If you look at our vision, it's to be Pan-African. We felt that's a good country where you can have liberal laws between various countries, which gives us an advantage over the long run, we felt. So we're not politically or any tied to any particular country that you'd be resident to in the sense. Today, for example, Kenya constitutes a large percentage uh, or constitutes oldest businesses where you talked about Roto and we talk about, but that's not where we see ourselves in the future. Uh, we want to see ourselves trading and working in nearly every country around the continent. And so we tried to choose a location which was more friendly to that. And that was the thinking behind choosing Mauritius. I think that was the question, right? Yeah, that was a question. No, no, and I think it's it is like uh, a very common structure. I think it's not only uh, Flame Tree that has it. I mean, there are other lots of other companies operating in Kenya that have their whole calls in Mauritius, especially com- companies with with which do a lot of interborder trading or have interests in different parts of the continent. It's just a sensible way and logical way of structuring, and the law, you know, any energy restriction that gives you that peace of mind in terms of access to law and favorable taxation. It's a no-brainer. But I think what I find very interesting uh, about Flame Tree is you identify as an African uh, company. You have Pan-African yes. ambition. 
and yes. you know all your assets are pretty much being being housed in Africa in, in, in one way or another, which is or well, at least most of your assets are being being housed in Africa. I think you've got a you've got something in the UAE uh, as well, and that has its own uh, advantages as well. Initially, if you look at industry in Africa, always had this post-colonial uh, inclination. So you look at West Africa that have a lot of French companies. You look at uh, East Africa, a lot of uh, and uh, or parts of the Commonwealth actually throughout the African Commonwealth. You have a lot of British industries, and then. You know, in the 90s, you started seeing, you know, post-apartheid South African companies going, venturing out outside South Africa. And now what you're seeing is we're seeing indigenous African companies like yourselves um, kind of really going head on into the local manufacturing space, you know, from, you know, you've got Bitcoin Kenya, you've got the Bakres, uh, Bakres Group, so Azam in, in Tanzania, and some others in, in Zambia. You know, you're seeing a lot of, and, and, and same thing is happening in Nigeria as well. You're seeing this uh, indigenous manufacturing uh, capacity being built, uh, being built out. What do you see the next 10, 20 years across the continent in terms of indigenous manufacturing? I strongly feel a lot of these companies that you man- mentioned will grow further. And a lot of companies from West Africa will come probably to these sides and similarly from South. So, so I feel a lot of companies will become a little more aggressive to looking beyond their borders. One of the disadvantages we have in individual countries, com- countries in, in Africa is they're small. If you look at a country like Malawi, it has a, probably a population of, if I'm not wrong, of between 10 to 12 million or Rwanda. And these countries alone do not stay sustain to have a large manufacturing operation unless they look beyond their borders. And I feel a lot of companies have now become ambitious as their businesses, equipment have become more sophisticated. They've seen the, the advantages the technological advantages, if I put it that way, between a multinational from out of Africa to those ones which are local have diminished over the years. And that will continue. The larger you are, you can buy probably the same equipment that uh, a large multinational or foreign company can put. So as you scale up your business, the differences do will reduce and we'll see in future more and more African companies manufacturing across borders. I, I already see Dangote's moving out of Nigeria into multiple countries. And I, 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 and I think personally that's good for the continent. We've got to create wealth within the continent, keep it here. And we've got to see companies grow up to become leaders which even the the future generations inspire to uh, aspire to you see most of our leaders at the moment that we have are just political leaders and uh, i'm not saying those should not be there but they cannot be the only uh, inspires to our younger generation and we've got to create new role models and as our continent grows and as these new companies go across the continent we're going to see better and better companies. And when they spread, they spread wealth as well. They spread leadership. They spread, spread ethics. Hopefully, if these companies are large enough and believe in those principles. And, 
And I feel that's going to be the future of our continent. I am quite optimistic about Africa. No, no, I think you, and you, you've raised a very good point that where we have to move beyond just political leadership to also looking at enterprise and firms and the drivers of the economy, because at the end of the day, that leadership and the, and the firms are what creates jobs and keeps the economies moving. So I think we've got a question. Someone has asked us to be given the speaking slot. So billionaire notes, if you can unmute your mic and introduce yourself. And I believe you've got a question, right? Yes, um, my, my question is, uh, we have what uh, Prince Charles said, uh, that uh, uh, the, most of the billionaires are thinking about space tourism, well, as we need to think about our, our continent or even uh, the globe, because now we are seeing many people having their mind looking to other things. My name is Asaf, I'm a business man. Uh, but now I think to our fellow businessmen, it's very important. Now we think something else different. We go back to issues that will even support the other businesses, not now looking at other areas, but to bring back. Because I'm also remembering about the Padola papers. When I when I looked at what Charles was saying, I think it's very important we have our mind coming back to our our country or even to our continent so that we'll be able to bring things into perspective and support and bring mentorship into businesses. So I think that is something that we need to look at so that now we can also, because you are seeing many entrepreneurs are coming up, but uh, what is happening is that they, they, they leave, they reach a point where they give up, there's no one else to really support them. And I think... There's a question we would ask ourselves, what should we do to make sure that uh, the business, even the ideas that are started, should mature into great business that will support even generations? Thank you. I think the question is, um, how do we make great ideas into sustainable businesses or something along that line? But the comment on space travel, I'm not thinking of doing any kind of space travel. I don't have the resources or the inclination. I think I want to stay on the ground. But the point I think he was trying to say is that we've got to find a way that there's more interest in our continent than moving everything out of out of here, even if it is to space or what you're talking about, the Pandora papers. I think it comes with our education, in my opinion. And I feel as as we build better education, we have more educated people, people who want to and understand the principles or ethics and want to stay within the law. I think those guys will want to grow this continent and also have a love for the continent that we live in. Besides that, I think if we have more role models, then I think we'll have the youth thinking of uh, doing more things on our continent instead of aspiring for what we see outside. And I feel the leadership in our continent needs to focus for that. In the sense, what we youth today are so hit with social media or television to saying that the West is so much better than where we are. And I think we've got to tell ourselves and our children that actually Africa is a beautiful place where we have is what we have with us is beautiful. And we should not let anyone destroy it, even 
people or even our leaders sometimes, I think. And I think it rests on us. If we can choose the right leaders, I think the rest will follow. All right, so I'll open up the speaking slot uh, to uh, Market Map. Uh, please let us know who's who's behind the handle today and uh, you can ask your question to her. Hello, this is uh, Keegan, one of, Keegan Kiplimo, one of the co-hosts of Kenya's Market Map, a weekly podcast that talks about business and finance happenings in Kenya and uh, East Africa. So first of all, thank you so much, Mwango, for putting up this space today. I just have two questions. One is, what has been the impact of the Kenya-Mauritius double taxation agreement since Flametree does business both in Kenya and Mauritius? And secondly, from a multinational private sector point of view, when do you think we will start seeing the fruits of the African continental free trade area, that is the AFCTA? Thank you. I don't have information on the second question. But to answer your question on the Mauritius double taxation, you see, a company in Kenya that manufactures or trades in Kenya uh, has to pay its taxes in Kenya. And once its corporate tax is paid in Kenya, in the event that it does want to give dividend, if it wants to give dividends to its shareholders, the shareholder is in Mauritius, the dividend has to get a tax in Kenya. And if that tax rate is higher than Mauritius, you then don't pay tax in Mauritius also. So the double taxation means that we don't pay tax in Mauritius for the tax for the dividend earned in Kenya. So there's no direct implication. It's just that we don't pay tax twice, both in Kenya and in Mauritius. But there's no way of escaping the tax in Kenya. So basically, Mauritius doesn't tax us. That's the situation with the structure of that uh, double taxation. Okay, uh, Keegan, I assume uh, all your questions have been answered. Uh, we can move on to the uh, next. So yeah, Tafutaji, uh, if you can tell us who your real name and uh, you can go ahead and ask your question. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Alvin Manko. I'm an ICT consultant. I'm based in Uganda. My main question is, we are now at the cusp of the, is it the sixth or the fourth fifth industrial revolution and adapting technologies in, in this era is usually seen as a very good uh, aspect in uh, for many businesses especially in cutting costs as you're seeing in the west and in our perspective in africa i don't know in your manufacturing and uh, industries and businesses uh, do you plan on uh, adapting these uh, new technologies especially robotics and artificial intelligence and how will it impact uh, job creation especially in an era in africa whereby we need more jobs to be created thank you very much that's a good question for us to be efficient and compete about uh, against other larger companies, obviously we have to use ICT. And for us at Flametree, one of the things we're looking at is uh, having a proper full world-class ERP system, which we are currently about to implement. This ERP system will put us at the same level as other larger companies outside Kenya or in Kenya. And it also comes eventually with the artificial intelligence helping you make decisions, which areas, which products are much more profitable. And for us as a company, we believe ITC is the way forward. There's no way of ignoring it. Even to sell your products online, we also use social media to market our product, to send our messages out. We have a whole department that handles that for things like doing business online. We feel it's very important. During this COVID time, for example, we've moved a lot of our meetings to virtual. We took a lot of time training all our people 
to move to most of the businesses uh, virtual so that we saved on travel we saved on we, we could have more meetings and we could present numbers much more easily so ICT really helps all businesses and helps us and the moment companies like us are more profitable and grow larger definitely we can hire more youth and i think that's half of the mission of businesses should be to hire more people in the sense and that's how we're going to bring the continent out of poverty eventually if we consider ourselves as poorer give the speaking slot uh, now to uh, you so you can go ahead and unmute your mic and ask your question Okay, thanks. First of all, big up to Mwango Capital for organizing such forums. And this is really pertinent. And I hope you have a recording or a podcast you can share so that uh, guys miss can actually get this. So for Harold, my name is Ayusa. And I have one of the persons we work with who's the co-founder for the company, which we are steering ahead and we're in the manufacturing space. And this discussion is really pertinent. For one, what Harrell has managed to do as Flintree, I believe that's what we are aiming for. Our space where we operate in is we are in the fabrication space, and the co-founder is actually here, is Kenneth, and the company is called 720. And the vision that we are trying to push or put forward is, you know, the market space we are looking at is Africa. So listening to you, Harrell, I'm like, you already have the blueprint of what we want to do in the space we are in. And my thing is like uh, most of the things you'll find, maybe we're struggling, we're trying to figure them out. And such forums, I know it provides uh, a lot we can learn and actually expand ourselves into. On to my question, uh, which are two. Um, one is a question, another one is a request. So the first one I'll have is previously in an interview you had, you mentioned that most of your growth has been organic, that uh, one of the things you've done is avoided loans or debt for that matter for your expansion. So why why exactly did you decide to go that route? And then the second request which I had is, as I said, that we, we, we've been looking for someone maybe to benchmark or learn or even get your tidbits in terms of the manufacturing process, what we are doing. So the request will be, is it possible that our company, 720, and sort of, if you can direct us to someone within your company so that we get to learn and adopt some of the best practices. Because I believe with this, be sure, Harold will be there with you in Maputo, showing us how we, you know, label our products in Portuguese and other markets that you're there. <laughs> so that's it. Thank you. Yeah, welcome to anytime. And I'm sure if you have the dream, the, it is possible. I think you can reach out to me on Twitter or, and then I'll send you my number and maybe I can uh, arrange a meeting for, for that and we can see if there's something we can do. On your first question on organic growth and uh, loans, I think I've, I'm basically was referring to one of our fundamental starts of the business. When we started our business, I hardly, we hardly had credit. We hardly took any loans. And even till more recently, I think some of the errors we have been doing is we've been investing in long-term assets using short-term cash. That means you the asset actually can generate money over a long term, but you use all the cash you have with you as a businessman and invest it today. While you should have used short cash for working capital 
and the asset should be spread over a long time. Those are the mistakes I've done, and those are the things that actually give us a lot of cash flow problems. We, you might make money, but you're still short of cash as a businessman. And if you go to any bank in Kenya, the banks are quite negative to helping us uh, entrepreneurs start, or even if you're growing your business, they are very pessimistic to the idea, and they're all always uh, collateral driven. If you have the collateral, whatever the idea, do you have the collateral, and then we can borrow to you. So for me, we found that difficult, and that's the reason why we looked at raising money because we needed the capital and we use the listing f- uh, way to get money. It's not the only way, but the, it's the way that worked for us and which was available for us. Venture capital is one of the other ways. But I think every entrepreneur, including for us, for me, myself, it was very hard to get money and to convince banks to support us. So until you could get the credibility, and today it's helped us get credibility, and now we do borrow. And we don't just do organic, we also do acquisitions, which help us add the brand and shorten the years in creating brands. So we do both, although most of our growth even today has been organic. All right, so I think on a, on a related uh, question, there's a question here from Evans Adoyo, and his question is, why hasn't the company paid dividends since listing? When are they planning to? <laughs> Good question. I would like to see the company give dividend. Uh, but we are still in a growing stage, and I I don't suppose I actually wanted us to see us giving dividend in the very near future. But the way I look at it, we have borrowed quite a bit of money at the moment. I'd like to see our borrowing come down. I'd like to see the company in a stronger foundation. That means look at the period that we are in today during the Corona season. It's troubling if you have. Again, commodity prices are moving up and down. If the company is not liquid and does not have enough to ride the rough patches, I think it won't last the years that we are aiming for. I believe a lot of companies that have lasted beyond the short term have always ended up plowing back their profits to grow the business. But if you look at our business, we've increased our asset base by over 33% over the last three years. So we've kept growing. Yes, we haven't given a dividend, but the company the shareholder owns has been growing. But in the future, as we entrench ourselves and see ourselves as more stable capitally, I do see us giving dividend, but not immediately. This is a pertinent question. I don't think it's, it's, it's only unique to FTG. I think everyone in the growth enterprises, the GEM segments, there's quite a bit that needs to be done in terms of in, in investor education where... At this, at, at the growth stage of, of of companies, is what you're investing in is is that future, and investors need to kind of price that risk in terms of the value that's going to be created, and not in terms of short-term dividends. So, what do you think, from just an industry point of view, and in terms of how NSE is structured, what needs to be done to kind of really educate uh, investors and also to attract the right type of investors to a company like yours? Yeah, I think there has to be more awareness in the market for that sort of thing. I think the NSC has to explain the function of a shareholder. It's not just dividend. Dividend is important. Myself being a shareholder, I would like to see a dividend, and that's the eventual goal where you build a company and you sit back and you can expect dividend if if you're still a shareholder. But the thing is, uh, to reach there, 
there's a journey for a company. And I the GEMS is not very different from the main market eh, in lots of regulations. So I wouldn't say that much of a difference, but it helps a smaller company like ours as well enter the market. Uh, but the fundamental difference I see in Kenya is uh, a lot of shareholders are very pessimistic about companies. And uh, if I know I'm comparing a company like, let's say, Elon Musk, Tesla, there is no way that we could have ever created a company like that because if it was through shareholders, they would have wanted dividend. Now, those companies rise in value in future expectations. But Kenya is a little, has investors have been or shareholders want to see the return immediately. But a lot of companies are still growing, ours included, which needs stability before we can give dividend. But in the growth stage, a lot of investors today do not see value. And I think the NSC needs to find ways to explain to people, you invest today for the future. And when you buy a share, you buy a part of the company. You're not buying a share to just move up and down. So what I have done personally, what I feel is, let's build a right business. Let's build, make a strong business. The share price, as important as it is, our focus has been innovation within the business. Look within, improve that, and a lot of the rest will take care of itself as we move along. Right. So there's a question here from Guma Andrew. I think he tried joining in to, to ask, but I can't see him anymore. But his question was, what role will access to credit, both conventional and buy now, pay later, play in the FMCG sector in Africa? So I presume uh, the implication, uh, what he's implying here is credit on the consumer side. I feel as we have more online platforms like uh, what we have, Jumia, for small purchases, they could give that buy now, pay later uh, concept. But when you're selling a product for 50 shillings or 100 shillings, it's very difficult for a company like us to collect that money in the near, later future. But my feeling is that that's a concept that's growing not just in Kenya, in other parts of the world. In Asia, I've seen it has started growing. So buy now, pay later has its opportunity. But I don't know if it's more applicable to capital goods, goods like fridges, TVs, or something that's a little bigger than a packet of chips. Uh, well, uh, it, it could work for tanks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it can. And in tanks, we have, we've had agreements with ba- uh, banks like Equity. We have SACOs that work with us. And uh, so their members buy with us. They, they get a term, a, a long-term payment plan. And if there's a way we can move that to an online system, I was having a conversation yesterday with someone who was proposing something similar. So I think we'll see that in the future, in the very near future, not very far future. When it comes to BNPL, I think my argument, especially uh, in the local context, I think it, it, it has already been validated. So maybe that fintech layer isn't there yet, but it's already happening in the market, whether you want to call it higher purchase or you want to call it, you know, pay by installments, that's on the on the and the payments are underwritten by uh, a financial institution. It is already happening, and it's it's been happening in Kenya for a very long time. So I I, I don't see it as being something new. I think it's just more. It's, it's probably going to be slightly more efficient than what 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 it is today. That's right. Okay. So I think there's another question from Keegan. He probably didn't uh, ask, or it came in later. Uh, this is from Market uh, Cap. Mm-hmm. He says, "What is the end goal?" of the numerous acquisitions of the 
company that the company has had over the last three years and you can if you can probably expound on those acquisitions okay we've done uh, a number of acquisitions uh, in the past i feel that acquisition has helped us grow faster in a field or somewhere we are not strong so what we've tried to acquire mainly have been businesses in the fmcg side not all have been successful some have more i i see although the majority have been good for the business an acquisition helps you cover the period that you it takes to build a brand so for me an acquisition is good but for us what we look for in an acquisition is something that fits our business model something that fits with what we do that means it should be within the F- fmcg space that we are working on although more recently we've bought a playground equipment and i'll i'll ex- playing the national before rational before behind that uh, but the moment because the route to market whether you have one product or you have five products is the same and as you take those products into market you have a lot of cost savings and some of these products can be grown a lot of companies globally have acquired letco brands and acquired again and acquisition as long as it's within your strategy and within your space is a good thing on the side of we more recently did a playground equipment manufacturer where we make playground the advantage of that or the reason behind that is it was manufacturing plastics it has the same equipment we have across the uh, various countries we operate we felt we could scale that business up it was very similar to our plastics business it is project based so we felt it could add revenue add margins to those the business in plastics so it is still for fell within very similarly what we do so we in in uh, the basis is that we try to buy something within the products that the acquisitions we, uh, businesses we work in if i segregate our businesses they're just two businesses we are in mainly plastics and fmcg the next question is i think this is from kigan as well so the question has two parts and now that you're listed the company there's a lot of scrutiny in the numbers so his question is has the company recovered the money that was tied up in imperial bank and second part of the question is why did the company find it find it necessary to borrow a billion shillings despite having positive working capital okay on the imperial bank we're working with them we still don't have the money back with us uh, sadly but we are still in process and we are still in talks with them and we hope we will get the money but uh, time will tell on the st- side of borrowing i think that figure is wrong of what we borrow borrowing our total borrowing presently stands at about 700 million and from last year to this year we've grown by about 7% it's not like it has uh, grown exponentially but the thing is our business is growing as well as we grow our business our top line we need more working capital so we need money to borrow we are buying equipment now most of this equipment that we're buying and installing requires um, capital and most of this has been long term capital we bought new properties in uh, ethiopia to put up a new factory that needed capital we we had to borrow for that we've put up we've expanded a capacity in kenya for plastics so we've bought more machines in in kenya we've put new lines for different products again in kenya in rwanda we've bought we've doubled the size of some of our equipment for manufacturing of pipes 
On the spices side, we've bought more equipment to make more efficiencies in the manufacture of crisps. So some of these things need capital and you need to borrow. It's the, it's the mistake that in the past, when before listing that you did, where, where I, what I did is take money, working capital and put it on a machine or put it on long-term assets. But today we do borrow so that we can manage our money more efficiently. Okay. And then there's another question here from uh, Guma Andrew. He's asking, is renewable energy the answer to high power tariff costs in uh, the manufacturing sector? I think renewable is, but I don't know how as if it's as efficient. We've been seeing a lot of quotes from solar companies giving us uh, cheaper proposals then KPLC and KPLC has been uh, increasing their rates consistently. So if uh, solar can be as cost effective, of course, it will be a great advantage. I don't know which other renewable we are, are we talking about. Wind, I think, is still not there because it ties to, it eventually comes through the KPLC network. But if on-site generation of solar, it will help you. But you cannot get away from it, from uh, connectivity totally because your your usage, your availability power from the sun is just during the daytime. And most factories have to work day and night. Noted. So, Aminia, if there are any additional questions from the audience or if anyone wants uh, to ask them directly, uh, you can ask to be given a speaking slot or you can uh, respond to at Mongo Capital or DM and your questions will be put forward to uh, to her. So I'll, I'll move over to the questions we had prepared, or at least the flow of the conversation. You know, FTG is 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 a regional player now. Maybe you could talk us a bit through your your regional subsidiaries and what plans you have uh, for at least you know you're you're operating in East East Africa, bits of South Africa, and planning for expansion to the rest of the continent. Yeah, in the near future, I would like us to stabilize where we are. I think sometimes the mistake is over expansion. I'd like to make the businesses we run be a little more stronger but as we do that yes we will expand into other countries as well but at the moment i'm not really we're not really looking at expanding the uh, footprint that we have but the foundation is that we eventually keep growing all right now let's talk about uh, a little bit about gems which is the growth enterprises market segment of the nsc and you know as you said small companies or small to mid-sized companies have have various options you know you could either raise from vc if you're lucky enough and you have a lot of growth you know you could be a target for private equity if you do have a little bit of assets you can try raising from financial institutions ftg is one of the the highlights of of the gems segment. So what is it that was attractive for FTG as a group? And what do you think is the future uh, for the segment? I think the segment has, I mean, first it's got to attract people so that it can grow. And I think the NSC as a whole needs to have more companies on it to give it more global visibility uh, because investors are generally, you've got a lot of global investors that you've got to see come eventually to Kenya. And the visibility in Kenya is just Safaricom or some of the larger banks and the airlines. But the more companies we have here, the more vibrant vibrant companies we have here, we would see more visibility for the exchange, and that will be good for everybody. But for a company 
to be listed. I mean, like you said, there are various options. But for an entrepreneur, I, I would say it's really firstly his decision on what he wants the future for his business. A lot of entrepreneurs find it very difficult to, to differentiate themselves from their businesses. They and the business are one thing. And uh, if that's the kind of mindset, then that kind of business should not list. Because the moment you list, you lose a lot of control because now you're actually an employee and you're just a shareholder. But between an entrepreneur who wants to see a business grow and be professionally managed and he eventually maybe even be replaced and be waiting for dividends from a professionally run company, between the spectrum from the first kind of entrepreneur to the last one, there's a broad number of kind of people. And so it depends on the mindset of the company, the people and the uh, that work there or the culture, whether it's ready for a list being a listed company and uh, is it an advantage or disadvantage i think for us it has been a plus there there are downsides to it but i do feel it really depends if the company is focused for that because that's not the only route yeah so what what would, would your advice be to founders or other smes who are looking towards this route obviously listing comes with additional uh, scrutiny which is which is for very good reasons you know corporate governance accountability transparency and obviously now in terms of your your admin costs your admin and legal costs they they shoot through the roof and obviously and then you have a lot of reporting to do that's not part of uh, core business so what's your advice to companies looking to to go through the listing again I think there are two sides to this. There is there are advantages and disadvantages that someone needs to consider and then decide is that the route he wants to go to. One of the things is yes, there's a cost involved. Okay, but for for example, for a company like Flame Tree, I feel it's expensive. But we larger once we get larger, I feel that cost becomes minimum. But as a, at our size, it's quite a substantial cost to what we feel we can afford. But the two sides is there's a positive and negative. The positive sides is the company since listing is a totally different company internally. The structures, the processes, and the kind of management that you that you can now attract, the capital that you can get, attract, those are the positives. Because the company now structurally is, say, let's say tomorrow I was to have someone else take my place, it could still move on. And uh, to be forced to do that, listing does push pressure for you to move to that direction. Uh, But the the downside is, as an entrepreneur, I would like to do more hands-on business. I would like to be, I prefer doing things like innovation. I like to get a more sense of the market. And one of the problems with listing is you have so many more meetings that you have to attend to board meetings. There's so much regulation, regulatory meetings, deadlines, and things that you have to that actually kill or remove the entrepreneurial side to you or to the business. And you need so many more approvals within the business as you formalize the business. And that kills a bit of the entrepreneurial spirit. So also with your management, 
there are people who would have joined your business when you were just one person or two people. As you grow the business, some of those people do get find this change in culture difficult, and you can lose can lose some very good people who have come with you a long way. But the idea is, if your idea is to grow the business and scale the business, then you need to be open to some of these non-entrepreneurial things that do come into the business, but help you move from, say, a $1 million, $10 million business to $100 million or $200 million. Because if you keep some of the old behaviors, it will never take you to where you are. And I think that's a very, very big plus of listing. And as a continent, the more companies we have in this space, the more will we see future multinationals because then a company and the entrepreneur at some stage are two different entities. And that's important for a business to really attract investors, attract good managers when you have good processes. And that's a plus. Some of those things that uh, I mentioned don't need listing alone. You can do it without that. But listing does reinforce it. Yes, I think it's it's part of growing up, you know, when businesses grow up and become uh, become more corporate, you know, it's the equivalent of uh, adulting, I suppose, in, in the business world. Yes, exactly. Okay, so there is a question on the on on your finances, and the question is: You supply to distributors on credit. Trade on receivables were down seventeen percent year on year uh, to stand at uh, seven hundred million in the first half of twenty twenty one. Speak to us a bit about your provisioning policy with regards to re- receivables. We use the for receivables we. On provisions, we use the guidelines as IFRS uh, 9 does. So anything older than a year, we have to provide for, I believe. But for us, um, one of the mistakes in my earlier years was, I, I think, credit control when I was much younger. And for us, the board has been very strong that we have to have a very strong credit control team. And when I ca- what I do look at the numbers is, for example, days of outstanding last year in 2020 was about 50. Today, we're down to about 46.2 days. And our working capital cycle has reduced from 69 to 51. So for me, those are very important. On, on bad debts, we, we have to provide as, as the accounting rules require us. But the structure that we have created internally on credit controls have reduced the risk of bad debt. Sadly, we've had the Nakomats, we've had the Uchumis, and and the such, and it's it's been a hard journey. But we're trying to avoid those mistakes coming back in the future. Well, and, and as you said, you know, it's it's part of that growing up. You know, when you're moving from a small business or medium medium sized business mode now to a listed company, getting in those controls, getting in the right systems. Uh, in place and learning, learning from uh, from mistakes. And I think what I found very inspiring is it's flame tree, isn't it, for the long haul? If you're looking at it just from the short term point of view, then yes, things are not looking too good. But I think if you are able to learn and if you're able to kind of build the structures, you know, the the assumption is at some point PNG had the same problems, or at some point Unilever also had similar problems. And how do you kind of craft a path that's more sustainable out of it and uh, become better from whatever situation you are in at the present uh, present time? 
Exactly. And isn't that what entrepreneurship is? You know, the terrain that some of the companies, if you're an entrepreneur, say in uh, Poland or in Germany, your journey is very different from us in Kenya or Rwanda or, or someone who started entrepreneurship in, say, Somalia. So I think being an entrepreneur, the be- beauty is that you have to find your way. You have to find the way to the top or your destination that you've decided. And it's never the same. So and and the landscape is constantly changing so you have to keep changing what your what the way you do business every single day so i i mean that's the fun of doing business and and doing business in kenya or africa is very exciting because things keep changing uh, faster or there's more set of problems than you sometimes can handle but it's exciting Okay, so I'll quickly go through the last four questions before we start the wrapping up in summaries. So there's a question here from TK. Uh, he says, I live in Karen and supermarkets near my house, including Chandarana, Carrefour, ShopRite and Naivas, hardly ever stock FTG products. Why is that? Chandarana, we are, we are working with them to get a listing of our, most of our products. We've uh, not found it very easy to list with them. With Carrefour, they have a process of uh, weekly orders and some of our products come on the shelves and get emptied within a day and we've been working with them to increase the size of orders so that we find more visibilities especially some of the hand washes and the sanitizers are not in Carrefour but the hand wash is there the sanitizer is not there but I think listing a product in a supermarket is not an easy job it's quite hard and uh, there's so many companies trying to list and put new products but we have a team with us that's pushing to list more products I'll take this up with my team and I'll see how to do better in Karen in your area to serve you better all right. Next question is from Aman Pirani. What do the trends point specifically for FMCG manufacturing in East and Central Africa in the next five years? Is there sustained growth or will it will the impacts of COVID-19 on the economy and spending power stagnate or reduce the rate of growth? For us as a business, if you look at our numbers, last year we grew by 20% being a COVID year in spite of the situation. I talked to many manufacturers, whether FMCG or other fields, there has been good growth in the region. The trend at the moment this year, we're still seeing an upward trend in growth. However, we are seeing stress on on our GP, uh, a huge stress at the moment because commodity prices globally have really risen and our margins uh, are under pressure. But if I look at the demand for product, we're still seeing upscale upscale demand. All right. I've just added the Prulev, I believe, EA, which is South Africa. If you could just uh, unmute your mic and quickly ask your question, and we'll be good to let us know what your name is. Hi, my name is Evans. Thanks so much for making time for, for the call, and thanks, Ariel. I think this is a great session that you guys are having. So it's really just a quick one. I think we might have spoken on this before, and I don't know if I missed this as I joined it a bit late. But I guess just the way your business is structured with the plastics on the one hand versus FMCG on the other, I am of the opinion that uh, you could probably command a higher valuation um, if these two businesses were separate. I guess typically because um, maybe that drives a bit more value creation across those different business lines, but also just the sort of like market multiple that would apply on the FMCG side certainly would be much higher. So, so it certainly looks as though 
the plastics business is maybe weighing down a bit in evaluation. I, I guess just because of its size and also just the market not understanding. I'm curious as to whether you think this is an accurate assessment and if there's anything that could potentially be done about it, do you think? Thanks. Yeah, I think that's a very accurate assessment. But for us as a business, if you look at it historically, plastics has ended up being the largest business. So when you have a new new side of the business, which is FMCG, you need do need cash flows from a from an older business to fund some of your newer newer business. But let's say ten years down the road, if we see that the FMCG business is large and can stand alone and it can have a separate listing, and we. I wouldn't say no to that consideration. Even if you look at the way we, even during listing, we were wondering whether we should have separated the two. But at this stage in the business, it has to be together. But in future, even let's say in future, we had to spin off one. Let's say there was one side of the business, we saw less growth and we could get a good valuation for it and invest in, say, if you said the FMCG had high growth, why not? I mean, that's something we would consider in future. Uh, I think the idea is to grow a business that's that would give us a good return. The only thing for that question is I would like to see us as an FMCG business. So I'd like to see the FMCG business move and grow for the long term. And spinning off, if the spin-off does not see us have that long-term growth goal, then I wouldn't do it. But uh, at this moment, to separate the two businesses, yes, I don't see a problem in that. But we're not yet ready, and we're not that there. But, uh, Evans, I see you're requesting again, but I've got to move on to the next questions, and we need to wrap up soon. So the next question is from Joel or Joel's, Joel's me. He says, why, and this is a quintessential question for listed CEOs, why has the share price stagnated for that long? I wish I could. The share price actually has never, does not really give the true value of the company. I would tell investors, I think it's a good opportunity to buy the share, that it's so cheap compared, if you look at our net assets, it hardly reflects that. It's But what can we do to increase the share price? Sadly, Kenya, the only thing they, uh, a lot of investors want is dividend. We are not truly there to give the dividend, as I'd answered previously. But once we do give dividend and we have more investor engagements, I do believe the share price should move up. For me, as the CEO at this stage, I, I as, agree, as you say, the share price is important. I agree with you. But share price is not the only thing. The foundation of a good, strong business, in my opinion, is the is the is the most important focus for me. To have a business that innovates well, has uh, good growth, and is stable and has uh, a good future, that will eventually we will see the value in our share price eventually on the long run. I think uh, well, I'll I'll get to that when we wrap up. So the last question uh, before we wrap up is from Jeffrey, and it says, "Which area does FTG participate in CSR, specifically in regards to supporting youth empowerment?" We do a lot of CSR, especially on the water tanks. I mean, we get requests consistently from schools, which is on the education side, because but we we have a process where we go and see the school if it requires the tank, and it's a contri- continuous process. But on youth empowerment, I think it was just two months ago where we donated quite a few tanks through Bahati, the singer, to for car washes. 
in some of the slums as as a means for them to either sell water or for car washes, both of the system. So we're constantly doing that. And that's not just in Kenya. We do our CSR in in Ethiopia, in Rwanda, in Mozambique. It's just part of the culture of the business. In things like cosmetics, we go to prisons. We, we help people groom. We help women in places where they can't afford things. We train them. We go to old age homes, provide them with help. We provide our snacks in those places. For us, CSR has been part of our culture. I think the function of a business cannot be purely just be there to compete over the competitor and be number one. But I think especially in a continent where we are, I think we have to have a social angle to who we are. And that gives uh, us meaning to the reason why we are in business and even to our employees. Okay, so I think uh, Tim has requested for the mic. I don't know if Tim, you can hear us. If not, we'll have to wrap up. Yeah, looks like he's, he's got issues. So I think to wrap up, uh, Harold, so I think uh, this is now the opportunity for you as the CEO to, you know, inspire confidence in, in Flame Tree, the brands that you're selling. And obviously, this is a very different company to the other companies that are there on the uh, NSC. And it's a company with Pan-African ambitions and you're already operating in multiple markets. Now, in terms of, you know, what is the vision, the key products, uh, and you can mention them by name, uh, especially the ones that you feel very passionate about. What markets are you are you targeting? And for current shareholders and especially for prospective shareholders, what is it that you want them to know about Flintree? I'll answer that question a little differently from uh, instead of talking about the brands and where we are and what we're doing, I think for a company to to be successful, the culture is the most important because if you've got the right people and the right culture, you'll come through every ad- adversary that you have. And just to give you an example of what the culture, because our core values and our mission and vision is really something that is really embedded. It's, I know in many mission and visions are just done for the purpose of having those statements, but our core values are something we believe in. And just to give you an example, during Corona time, when Corona hit in March, we had a numbers and a lot of companies were laying off people because they wanted to safeguard the company. They wanted to safeguard cash. And as a company, we wondered, do we have to lay off people? Because this was the initial stage of Corona. And we decided as a company, we always talked that we are a family. We believe in our continent. We believe in our people. If during the time when the worst happens, if we start laying off people, that does not make us believe in anything that we did. So we took a call. We never cut salaries. We never let a single person off during this corona time. But we, what we did is we called all people together and we said, listen, we are going through a difficult time. And can there be ways that we as a company can save either in logistics, save innovation of new products? Can, you, can the salespeople work harder to make sure we survive as a company. And that's what happened. We had higher sales. People innovated more. We had curfews in, in, in certain parts of Kenya, in cities of like Nairobi. People would find their way past curfew, closed areas, find their way to work just because they believed in the company and they believed what we believed in. They believed that we can create a better continent. We can create a better Kenya. And this is I know it's commonly said, 
statements of good speech, but we at Flame Tree believe that. And for me, if we have the right culture, we can create the best brands. If we have the right culture, we can live, make this company something that everybody is proud of. Our employees, what we say every day is, when this company is much larger, we want each and every employee to tell their kids, I was part of that journey. And I feel for investors, it's a good time for me. I feel if they are part of our journey in this future, what, what we dream of, I think that's much larger than just talking about the brands and why we believe in what we are doing. I think the culture and who we are is what I really would like to sell to everybody on this platform at the moment. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. you know, it reminded me of uh, Peter Drucker. You know, he says uh, culture eats uh, strategy for breakfast, but strategy is also very important. And so before we close, I see, I see Tibia. Tib, we're going to give you a very short window to ask your questions or give in your comments before we close this. Over to you, Tim. No, no, thank you so much, Sword, and um, it, it's a really great pleasure to have Ariel. Uh, listening to entrepreneurs like yourself, Ariel, is a, is a truly amazing thing. So I actually don't have a question. Maybe the only comment I had on, 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 on renewable energy, being an entrepreneur in that space, is that it is true what you said. Solar will cut your power by not less than 50%. The only challenge is that because it operates five hours in a day, it might only address you know less than 20% of your energy spent. You still need 80% of your energy coming from other sources. So there might be need to combine that with you know other energy efficiency measures or cogeneration where it's possible, and just more generally looking for you know opportunities to lower cost for manufacturers in the whole country. But just to say, I, I really wish I, I listened to your story because I realize you're a significant shareholder of three. I would have loved that in the next session or in future to learn, to listen to, you know, just, you know, from the from the very, very, very early stages up to where you are now. But uh, congratulations, and I look forward to supporting brands in the coming days. Well, thank you very much, Harold. Thank you very much. Bonnie, who was producing in the back end, and thank you very much to Eric Miner, who was the technical producer today. We can't do these wonderful spaces uh, without the team here at Mwango Capital. And thanks to the audience and to all of those who've helped us line up these interviews and ask the right questions. We will have to call it a night, and we will see you next time. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you, everyone, and have a good night. Yeah.